HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food. And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, every single one of them, I'm sure, is tuning into Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we look at the intersection of food and technology. Typically, we have a lot of interesting guests in the studio, but this show is a little bit different. In January 2019, I moderated a panel at the General Assembly on the future of food, and it was such a great conversation, we decided to record it, break it into two parts, and play it for you here on Tech Bytes. Last week, we aired part one. Today, we are airing part two. The panel is comprised of representatives from some really great food tech companies like Meal Pal, The Farmer's Dog, Martha and Marley Spoon, Slice Life, and Food 52. So stay tuned for part two of General Assembly, The Future of Food. Just out of curiosity, go down the line. Are you a food person or a tech person? I don't know if I can answer that. Um, I'd say I'm a I'm more of a tech person. Okay. Uh, food for sure. Yeah. Food. Classic cheese person. <laughs> Not plain, it's classic cheese. <laughs> I'd say I'm a food person before tech. Yeah. 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 That's good to hear. Um, I, the, the hope always, and I think one of the focuses of the show that I do, is that ultimately we always hope that technology is going to help get you to a good food experience in real life. So... Anything coming up in terms of real-life experiences? I note that Food52 is an online community, but you do do the in-person events. I notice walking around the city, I see so many pop-ups of companies that are online that now have in-person stores. Amazon has in-person stores. I saw this crazy Amazon pantry store in San Francisco. Has anybody heard about these or seen these? It's, a, it's like a mini, imagine like a super high-tech, clean bodega with no people, but Amazon checkout at the end. It's just fascinating um, with some people in there to explain to everybody how it works. I think it's very interesting that all these companies that are successful online ultimately feel the need to get in front of people in real life. Why do you think that is? I mean, we're social creatures, uh, so naturally that'll happen for us. And my vision is to really, look, pizza is the most social food 
possible. It's eight slices, it's made to share, uh, it's really the center of many so parties. So Neapolitan. Fair. Um, and my vision is just to throw the biggest pizza party on the planet. And, uh, Guinness Book of World's Records? Do we know what the biggest No, I don't really care is? about records. It's more just for fun. Um, but I think we'll, uh, we'll probably make that happen over the next... It's coming soon. You'll hear about it. Ryan's going to kill me. He's like, what? All right. Put it out into the atmosphere. Um, so it's a bit tricky for us because part of our spiel is kind of... The subscription, the direct-to-consumer subscription model wasn't something we kind of picked. It sort of picked us. We, we couldn't have the product that we have without a direct-to-consumer subscription model because as soon as you start talking about retail environments is when you get into shelf-stable preservatives and really long freezing times and inventory management and, and a lot of waste. Uh, whereas with us, we can kind of make the food to order because dogs are the perfect subscription customer. They eat with high, high regularity. Uh, they, don't want, uh, they don't want or need much variety, unlike people. Um, so they're really brilliant subscription customers. Um, but it also allows us to predict way, way, way in advance how much food they'll need at any given time, and so we can reduce waste that way. At the same time, 80% of our product, or of dog food, is still purchased in brick-and-mortar retailers. Um, so we're certainly missing out on a lot of traffic and distribution and, and marketing potential. So um, we'll, we'll figure out how we show up in the physical world, but um, it's sort of core to our current product not to, in a way. I have a, I have a question, and it's not really tech-related at all, but I'm just curious. I do not have a pet. I've never had a pet. When people order food for their dogs, do they order food for their dogs following their own personal nutrition program or profile? Like, do paleo people want paleo for their dogs, or kosher people want kosher for their dogs? Or, I'm doing the whole 30 right now. I'm in week three. Do not come near me with that pizza box. Um, do, do people do that? Um, do you have Whole30 for dogs happening uh, right now? Not that I know of. I think the, the, <laughs> the kosher thing, I believe is a thing. We don't offer it, um, but I would imagine if you're handling the food, you'd, you'd also want it uh, to be kosher. We do see generally a parallel between people who care about their own health and well-being and what they're putting into their bodies. It's an easier sell um, for them uh, to make that same sort of choice on behalf of, of their loved one. Um, but we, we also try to kind of walk that fine line between you know, becoming a parody of ourselves and, and going too extreme into kind of the goop territory. Um, you know, we, we want to we wanna acknowledge that dogs are dogs. They're not people. They don't necessarily sh need to or, in fact, shouldn't be eating the, the exact same thing we do. But uh, we think there's certainly a step up from, from the status quo of, of kibble. No, no canine jade rollers? <laughs> not yet, at least. Okay. But. Okay. So what's the future of food at all of your shops coming? What's the, what's the big thing on the whiteboard that you're really hoping that you can accomplish? Either, not necessarily maybe 2019, but maybe for the next. I mean, tech cycles and, and media cycles are so fast now. It almost has to be 2019, but it takes a while to roll things out. So is there some whiteboard idea that you're really going for? Really, it's interesting because when you were asking about like what's the next emerging thing, I was thinking of experiential, otherwise like a real life experience. I'm like, experiential is just I'm like, a tech word for real life. Just doing things in the physical world with other people in real life, which is neither new nor technology, but what, so ironically enough, uh, but what we are thinking about at Food52 is right now with our line 5.2, that's our first expression of this is something that we've produced because we sell other makers that comes from us that will live in your kitchen and is like that extension of the brand right there in front of you. And then continuing to think of like what does that, what does that look like in real life? If you were to walk into food52.com in real life, what would that experience feel like? What would a retail experience be like? How could it be different or the same? from others. So that's really the big, the big thing. So the big thing is offline. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Uh, for us, it's uh, really just looking at all the, 
all the different things that we can do in order to make sure that again it's all about convenience and value but the the vision for us is like a pizzeria in a box so any amazing maker can launch their own business within 24 hours and they'll know exactly where to start in terms of location what to sell and uh, and have demand have buyers lining up from uh, from day one so how can we make that possible uh, and all the different things that we're building in terms of our platform is all about taking us towards that vision. When you say pizza in a box, though, I think about, like, you call up and then this giant container and it's, like, the oven and a stack of the boxes. You know, I was thinking of a and, smaller box, you know, like, the, like a little computer. The cheese and the tomato and you could open up a, a physical yeah. store. Yeah, I mean, basically, like, a platform where um, if you're a maker and you really want to, and you're passionate about what you do and you really want to, monet- like, turn that into... Um, into a livelihood, then you should be able to get a product that gives you access to everything that you need in order to be successful. So you get access to consumers, you get access to supplies, uh, you get access to a brand, uh, a micro brand for for your for your neighborhood, and um, you know payments and technology and the whole thing. And you shouldn't have to worry about all of that. All you should really focus on is your craft. And so that's that's our goal. Pizza in a box. Yeah. Okay. Um, for the meal kit space, or Marley's been in particular, it's um, for sure about offering as much choice as possible to our customers. Uh, you know, everyone's taste is different. Like I said, it changes maybe every week. So to be able to provide as, as many recipes per week as possible uh, is, would, is the ideal. Um, you know, how can we do that, given that, and, you know, keeping in mind not wanting to waste and, and the constraints we have of sending fresh food. Um, and then also thinking about, you know, how can we make the meals as customizable as possible um, so that if you are paleo or gluten-free or whatever, you like that meal, but you want it gluten-free, how can we give it to you gluten-free? Um, so really just broadening that choice um, to, to appeal to as many customers as possible. Uh, for us, in a weird way, I think it's about using technology to be a bit more analog. So we find that we have crazy conversion rates uh, over the phone, like actual phone calls. Um, and, you know, obviously that's supported by, by various technologies and uh, we have an amazing customer support team. Um, it, it's not a straightforward switch to change what you're feeding your dog. It's not a decision that's made very often. People have a lot of questions and so um, finding the right ways of communicating one-on-one with prospects or with customers um, is, is a big challenge and, and one that we're going to use technology to kind of figure out. Even simple things like how do we create the infrastructure for including handwritten notes in a box or uh, kind of surprise and delight uh, gifts. Um, all of that needs to be enabled by and supported by and predicted by technology, but ultimately it's, it's that kind of uh, human real gesture uh, that's, that's the end product. Uh, for MealPal, it's a couple things. One, it's launching new markets. So a couple weeks ago, we launched in Los Angeles. And today, we launched in two cities in New Zealand, Auckland and Wellington. Um, and we plan to launch a few more later this year. Um, so we're at 19 right now. And uh, also, um, to Jennifer's point, um, more choice. So adding more restaurant partners in our existing markets, bringing more good quality meals uh, from our restaurant partners, sharing data about how customers are rating food back to our restaurant partners so they can keep getting better and making better food for their customers. Well, that sounds good. Sounds like the future of food is good for everybody, people and pets, (laughs) which is good. And it has pizza, which is good. Um, I'm going to just run through and do a quick call out of everybody's website and the all-important Instagram if people want to look and follow. Uh, MealPal.com, at MealPal. TheFarmersDog.com, at TheFarmersDog. MarleySpoon.com, at MarleySpoon. SliceLife.com. But Instagram is at Slice, which I'm so impressed by. 
because I think it would be really hard to get. But it's the simplicity. It's like, yeah. you have to buy it from someone. Yeah. You could offer pizza buys you a lot more than you think. Yeah. No, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't pay anything for it. And food52, numbers52.com, and at food52, if you want to find people and follow along. I would love to open up the floor to questions. We have questions. You, because you raised your hand at the very beginning. Um, I guess I'll do the mic into the audience thing. But my shoes are going to make a lot of noise. Okay, sorry, sorry. Hi, my name is Bobby, and you know I'm curious about in terms of whether it's expanding new markets or just growing the business. What kind of metrics or what kind of you know things do you all look into for each of your individual businesses when thinking about growth? Because you know growth isn't the same for any company at all. Yep. Um, for us, it's pretty simple that we look at one major metric, which is what we call. GMV, which is gross managed volume. That means the amount of um, food sales that are passing through Slice. That is equal to the value that we pass to our small business partners. And it's also equal to the value that consumers find in, in Slice. And then we break that down into parts. One is, again, the seller side, which is the restaurants. How many active restaurants do we have? Which combines acquisition with retention. And then how many active consumers do we have? Which also combines... Um, acquisition with retention. So, you know, those are the three three metrics we look at, and as long as all three are kind of going up and to the right, then we uh, we continue to grow and scale. Hi, uh, I'm Paolo. Uh, this one's for Slice and Meal Pal. Um, I think it's. I think it's safe to say that at the early stages of your companies, like your biggest metric was the number of restaurants that were partnered with you. So I was wondering, how many did you wait to have before you launched, and how many did you wait to have before you raised money? Okay. Um, so I launched when I got my first pizzeria, which was one of my immediate relatives, and that was... We launched right right off the bat. Um, you know, there's the chicken and the egg problem in marketplaces where you have sellers and you have buyers. Which ones come? Which one comes first? And usually, you want to tackle the one that's more difficult to get first. Um, for most people, getting pizzerias on board is still today very very difficult. For me, getting the first thirty on board was very easy because they were all family members, and if they didn't join, they were no longer family members, so they had no choice. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I actually bootstrapped the business for six years. So I didn't raise a penny of capital until September of 2015, and I launched in 2010. And even when I raised, uh, it was a profitable business, and I raised a million dollars from the founding team of Seamless Web simply to get them uh, on board and, and really just vested into the business because I wanted to tap into their network in terms of talent. So that was sort of the trade-off for me, but... You know, we're, we're growing really, really fast, and um, our goal is to sell and to really pass over $500 million in, in value to small businesses this year, and we're, we've done that with less than $20 million raised ever, so I'm really, really proud of that. How many did you have, though, when you raised that money? Uh, we had 3,000 restaurants on the platform, but it, it, yeah, by that point, it was, yeah, it was, I could have, pro if I wanted to raise, we could have probably raised once we got to about... Call it 200 restaurants. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question because I wasn't the founder. Um, but typically, before we launch into a new city, we get about 100, 150 restaurants before we enter. Hey, um, my name is Praise. Uh, I had a question for Marley Spoon. Um, I would assume that one of your uh, key metrics is cost per customer acquisition. And given that you're in the meal kit space, and I'm on like social media quite often, and I see a lot of meal kits being offered to me, and there's like, it seems like a really uh, discount-driven marketplace. So one, how do you deal with the churn when like a customer could just jump into an entirely new meal kit company? Like, 
a dinnerly or um a home well, luckily chef. we own dinnerly too <laughs> oh awesome awesome yeah so like in that space like so how do you how do you deal with that and then like what how do you combat these other companies who are just strictly offer driven yeah, I think that is a good differentiator between us and our competitors. Um, our CPA is much lower than theirs. We um, rely a lot on referrals. We have a very, very large section of, of referrals, and we spend a lot of time retaining customers rather than acquiring new ones. We, we organically get a lot of new customers, but we really want to focus on retention more than acquisition. Um, so that's been really our focus. Uh, and s- slow, steady growth is kind of our our key. Hi, my name is Joanna. Um, I work within the financial services industry where our audience for U.S. financial advisors is 300,000. You can't really grow that base, so it's a matter of targeting the same audience in different ways. And you spoke a little bit about this, but I was curious if you could elaborate or anyone else on the panel on how much you're focused on acquisition versus retention and how your strategies differ within each. Um, Our focus is all on retention. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're not able to really provide what the customer really wants and loves and uh, something that a customer is going to come back and use your product uh, based on just how, how well you're executing, then adding more to the top of that funnel is just kind of silly in my point of view. We had a problem early on because we didn't really have much of a product. We just had this like website. We didn't have an app until 2017. And so... We had a real retention problem early on, uh, and it was just kind of self-inflicted. And you know, I, I didn't even call it a leaky bucket. It was like a tube. It was like everyone coming in and just coming out. Um, and until you really create a product, because retention is not about the metric. It's about the fact that you've created a product that people want. And if you haven't created something that people want, then you shouldn't go and tell other people about it. Um, and so that's how we, how we look. But any business, if you have a business and you're here, focus on retention first. Until your retention is like uh, awesome, then stop worrying about acquisition. Yeah, I'd probably just add to that because of Food52, because we're also a content brand, we have the benefit of having this highly engaged, owned community um, across our platforms that we talk to over and over and over again. Um, and thinking about part going back to like being data driven as well, looking at things that um, or data guided, I should say, um, looking at um, things that have performed well in the past, how can we repackage them, but then also um, having that delight factor in how we package up information. Um, and I would say similarly, like we, I mean, I've been at quite a few startups. We're not spending millions and millions and millions of dollars out there in the marketplace on acquisition either. We're really focused on, you know, when people become a part of our community and they're attached to what we say and our aesthetic, we really are able to keep them around and continue to engage them through content. And we've found that um, in the digital marketing that we do do that's paid acquisition, we really are leveraging our content to bring people through. It's kind of like the top of the funnel uh, for us, you know, whether it be a recipe video, there may be some light product placement, you create an account, you follow us on Instagram, and that, that be- then those other, our variety of channels become a way that we can continue to engage you, and which may lead you to your first purchase, and then from there you're kind of ours, so... This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, 
and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Great Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, I'm Sterling. Um, a lot of you talked about growing choice for your customers, but uh, when we think about the future of food, there are already a lot of environmental and economic costs associated with food. So uh, do you think about, like, not to continuously attack avocado toast, but how we can get New Yorkers to stop eating avocado toast or avocados, um, but still give your customers and uh, more choice and grow your businesses? There's no way we that's happening. Send There's no way so. New York's going to stop eating avocado toast or avocados. I don't think those avocado toppings for pizza, so I'm, I'm yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the only way you can do that is if you create, like, one of those romaine lettuce salmonella scares, one, or two, just tell everybody that it makes you really fat. I mean, we've seen really great engagement around content about how to reuse food waste and food scraps. We had a whole series about that that people really latched on to. Even in the products in our shop, you know, of course we want people to shop a lot, but we're really mindful about um, anything that's reusable. Like we sell uh, beeswax wraps, glass straws, those kind of things. And we really don't want them to be throwaway things or things that... um you can't reuse or use over time. So that's, and we've seen our community really gravitate to that idea. Um, and it's, we've had a standalone series, but it's also, we've integrated them into recipes. We have a sort of like a sub brand called Genius Recipes. And um, you can, you, you know, we had a recipe where we used an entire, like the whole orange, including the rind and in the cake. And it was amazing. I tasted it. It was really good. Um, but, but things like that and ideas like that, we, we tend not to be too prescriptive about being a locavore, but we do find that we have a community that's really drawn to that and want to give them options around um, easily kind of uh, incorporating that into their cooking life. There's another question over here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Piper. Uh, I work in the financial industry. And uh, when we talk about technology um, solving a pain point or meeting a need, uh, one of the challenges that I have found is getting some of the older demographics to adopt and engage with that technology. Have you experienced that same situation? What are your strategies to sort of overcome that, or do you ignore that demographic altogether? Yeah, we actually, so that resonates really closely with me because we're, we're partners with pizza, you know, pizzeria owners that are generational and um, really lack technology and actually don't necessarily embrace it. So we've embraced that. So we've embraced the non-technical aspect of local pizza and uh, found ways to really make sure that we deliver convenience and, and value and speed to the consumer by creating a very non-technical solution. So to give you an example... Uh, about 40 to 50% of our orders are transmitted via fax within like probably 30 seconds. So there's like fax, AP, like the fax industry is alive because of local pizzerias. Um, so we'll do that. There are some restaurants where we literally phone in the order. So you'll order online and we have a team in Europe that'll phone in the order traditionally. And we do that only for a short amount of time. I, I, really believe in this um, um, in this theory called uh, well just I don't know if you've heard of Raymond Louis who is the father of modern, modern industrial design he's got this uh, theory called Maya which is most advanced but it's got to be yet acceptable um, and so one of the problems with technology is it's not acceptable it's advanced but not acceptable to the small businesses so we just find ways to make sure that we embrace the non-technical factor then once they get value 
we can we can implement anything. Once a restaurant owner sees 200, 300 orders from Slice on a monthly basis, which equals, you know, six to $10,000 in business, then you say, hey, we're going to give you this little technology device that's going to make this a lot easier. They're not going to say no to that. But yeah, we... We will we will say yes to no technology without a problem. The, That's our way of solving it. The, the farmer's dog is often labeled as a millennial brand in kind of headlines and by journalists, but millennials are actually a small minority of our customer base. Um, we're in the 48 contiguous states. Um, you know, I mentioned some of our kind of more analog tools, but those help, right? If if someone has a question, they can call us or email us or use a format they're more comfortable with. We try to make the sign-up process as engaging as possible and kind of intuitive. But at the end of the day, we're making a physical product. And so once someone gets over the hurdle of that first order, they get their delivery, they get it, hopefully. Um, and then the technology sort of becomes invisible after that point. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Danny. I'm actually in the specialty food industry, um, and I have a background in culinary and everything. So kind of each of your company is really interesting seeing where they've all started and how they've kind of evolved and a lot about technology. So what do you feel kind of like for Marlene Spoon, Martha, Meal Pal, and even the Farmer's Dog, how do you feel you differentiate yourself in the marketplace to say, come to us versus every other competition or with Martha and Marley, you know, there is a lot out there, but how do you also differentiate and say in retail now, you know, Kroger's is buying, you know, companies and, you know, the bigger companies are scooping up the little guys or Amazon has meal kits or delivery or Uber Eats. So how do you feel you are trying to stand out versus everybody really? Yeah, uh, we do have a lot of competitors. <clears throat> for sure, there's I think 150 meal kits in the U.S. Really? Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think uh, the partnership we did with Martha Stewart was very smart. Uh, Martha's always been known for, you know, good recipes that work, very well tested recipes, and so we have her database of 18,000 recipes to kind of work off of, and um, you know that definitely gives us a distinguishing element. However, you know, we're pushing it further by trying to offer more choice, as I mentioned, um, you know, more, more than our competitors are offering so that we can continue to, you know, deliver not only great recipes that are from a trusted source, but also a wide variety of them so that we can try to appeal to as many people as possible and, and keep those customers that are with us and have been with us from the beginning. And now they have even more to choose from. Uh, for MealPal, we actually don't have any major direct competitors. So um, MealPal is lunch for $6 from thousands of restaurants. Um, you can't really beat that price. You can't really beat that value proposition. And we we like to think about um, approaching business with a jaw-dropping, competition-crushing, we call it JDCC value proposition, where um, it's just really unbeatable from a competitive perspective. Um, there are other food ordering companies out there, of course. There's Seamless and Grubhub. They're the same company. Uh, Uber Eats, like all those companies, but they're primarily focused on delivery, and the average price point's like around $15 plus. Uh, they're taking a huge fee from their restaurant partners, and we're, for us, we're $6. Uh, it's pickup, mostly. Um, and But yeah, we still work with these thousands of partners. So, so far... We've been sort of the only game in town, but we'll have to continue to be uh, on our toes to make sure no one else can beat us. Yeah, we have, we have a few kind of direct competitors in the fresh space, but the whole category is so new and still relatively so niche um, that anything they do to kind of grow awareness of the category kind of helps us too. So we're we're kind of fixated on the status quo of the big premium commercial cable companies and, and what we can do to persuade customers of those to, to switch to us. Um, so we sometimes get asked, oh, well, what if Walmart launches a competitor or Amazon or whoever? Um, and obviously that would be a little bit scary, but at the same time, it would do wonders for kind of the awareness of fresh food as an option for dogs. And then we just have to have confidence in 
the kind of quality of our product, the logistics, and, and our customer service experience to kind of capitalize on that category building. Blockchain for your procurement chain right. is what you'd need. Of course. Yeah. AI-driven blockchain <laughs> VR. Walmart launched, <laughs> Walmart launched blockchain for their supply chain last year. It was a big... Uh, they did a big uh, PR push around it. And it's not universal for every SKU. They started testing it with a couple of different things. But when Walmart decided that they wanted an organic Cheerios on the shelf and they decided that they wanted organic breakfast cereal because that became so important for you know America generally, now you see a lot of organic breakfast cereals. So... You know, if they if they go all in on blockchain for their supply chain, you can bet that everyone's going to domino along with it for sure. But does the end consumer kind of experience the? Well, you look at what happened with romaine lettuce and salmonella. That's blockchain can help solve those types of problem when it comes to foodborne illness and tracking. Uh, from one supplier to the next, right now, a lot of the food chain people don't know. So it would solve, um, on a larger scale, potentially earlier warnings at earlier points for things like foodborne illness, and you'd be able to really pinpoint it in a way that you cannot now. So The question I always have about that is, doesn't it still ultimately, though, depend on human input at the very beginning? So someone has to manually kind of say, this diamond is not a blood diamond or whatever. Well, not in the food chain. I mean, it also just has to do with when you transfer product from one place to another. So you grow the romaine lettuce in California somewhere, and when it gets on a box, it gets barcoded into going into a place, and then it goes to the facility where it gets washed and gets packaged. And some of it goes to Walmart, and some of it goes to Trader Joe, and some of it goes to you know, wherever, and then it disperses into the wild. And right now they can't follow where anything came from because it's all paper or it's non-existent. I did a show on blockchain. <laughs> I did a show on blockchain with um, IBM Food Trust blockchain group. It was fascinating. It was super geeky. He was a great guest. He brought me IBM blockchain socks as a gift, which is good. Yeah, excellent. But it's, it's a fascinating thing, the blockchain, for sure. Any other questions? Oh, okay, in the back. You actually kind of answered um, a portion of my, my question because um, you mentioned iPhone a couple of times how you know it's 10 year anniversary and whatnot. Um, my only experience in food is really eating it so since you guys are in the industry I'm curious um, based on your network and your experience if you see a sort of a trend um, that's possibly you know coming up um, that could re revolutionize the industry the same way iPhone had where it completely changed what people wanted, right? Because, you know, CDs were the thing and all of a sudden they weren't. Um, and it completely crushed, you know, that whole industry. Is there anything that you can think of or that's been coming up and whatnot? I'm just curious. I, I think, um, jumping to the conclusion that the iPhone, the possibilities that are there in front of us with within the iPhone are kind of behind us. Making that assumption, I think, is a huge mistake. We're literally in the first inning of what's possible with whether it's your iPhone or just any smartphone. But like some of the things that I come across in terms of conversations and I get pulled into a lot of these like VC panels whose job is to think 10 to 20 years from now. And I mean, there's conversations had now where the question is, will homes have kitchens in five or 10 or 15 years? If food is so accessible and almost immediately available, and it's uh, it can come from again any one of one of these companies here, then the question is, do you need a kitchen in the home? And if you don't need a kitchen, then and then you don't need a garage because cars are all autonomous. And 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 so, what is what is the what you know what what do cities look like uh, over time? And maybe you don't need a home because WeWork um, right downstairs now has a location. Now they have we live, and all of a sudden you're you're starting to question literally like life. <laughs> so I think again the 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 thing for me is like assuming that the iPhone, the capabilities, and the things that will happen uh, centered around the iPhone 
are kind of behind us is uh, is a huge mistake. Super early. I mean, I was talking, uh, we were talking earlier. A lot of the brands that you see on Seamless and Uber Eats don't exist. They're just brands that are only exist on the app. Um, there are many, there are over 2,000 brands on Uber Eats that are literally brands that only exist within the Uber Eats product uh, because it's basically some burger restaurant and because they have a fryer, Uber Eats said, hey, we're going to give you this chicken wings brand only on Uber Eats and all you have to do is just make chicken wings, which they already do anyway. And so now that burger restaurant has two brands on Uber Eats, but it's only one location. Then why stop there? So they created a third and a fourth. So now these locations have like what you pass by as one sushi restaurant probably is four brands for you on Uber Eats. And you, you have no idea about that. Like you would never know. Um, so that's already happening, right? So just like the possibilities are endless and it's all enabled by the iPhone and there's nothing that's going to come really in the next five years that I think will you know, outperform the capabilities of what is to come still with the iPhone or smartphones in general. The, the past couple of days I've been reading about this company called Loop that's trying to revolutionize packaging. The idea being they partner with a lot of big brands, and so the next time you get your Hellman's mayonnaise or Axe deodorant, it comes in a completely reusable container that you then ship back to them once you're done. Meanwhile, a new one is kind of on its way, or you get some sort of refill. Uh, so I think things like that, that kind of make sustainable behaviors mindless and really convenient, um, could be very, very revolutionary in food, certainly, and a lot of other industries, but behavior change is hard. So anything that makes it kind of convenient, I find really, really interesting. Yeah, they're one of the they're one of the partner ones. Yeah. There was a question back here. No, that was you. Oh, back here. Okay. I'm gonna get trapped behind the sofa. Hi, uh, I'm Ronnie. I wanted to kind of take it back to your early days of proof of concept and if you could speak to when you knew that this was going to actually get some traction and be a great idea. Fucking too much. Um, for me, well, I, I like to study before I jump into something. So um, I knew. So I had a tech support business prior to Slice um, that I launched right out of school that I eventually franchised as a model because I've always believed in the power of, of many, the power of community, and how do you work together to make sure that you can deliver a better end, end user experience. Um, through that, a lot of friends and family wanted me to build websites and online ordering systems for them. Um, and, you know, it sounded all pretty good, but they all kind of sounded pretty similar in their asks. But I still, you know, I think I took a good eight to ten months studying the pizza category and what are the differences. And so what I found was that the big chains, although they make up the minority of the industry in terms of revenue, over 50% of their transactions were digital. And then the small business segment makes up three quarters of the industry and over 95% of their transactions are offline. And so that's the gap that I realized that I saw that was really, really just a, you know, my green light to move forward. And then, you know, built a couple of websites, but it was still kind of very, it was a website company basically. Um, and then once we launched my pizza, the biggest question was, okay, we have the sellers, we have the pizzerias, how can we get the buyers? Cause you have the whole chicken and the egg problem. And it was all about talking to owners and just asking them, how do you get customers today? And then going to customers and saying, how do you find pizzerias today? So many of them said, well, we get customers by printing all these menus and they print them at like 25,000 of them at a time and then they'll mail them out and you get menus in your mailbox. And again, like Manhattan's unique because pizza industry is predominantly suburban and, and like small town, vast majority over 90%. And so in the suburbs, like, that's what still happens. You get a menu in your in your mailbox once every quarter, usually from like a couple of different spots. And then you ask customers, 
how do you find out about pizzerias? And they're like, I go on Google and I search for Joe's Pizza and I found the, I find the phone number there. I try to find the menu, but usually they'll mail it to me and there was a disconnect. And so first thing we did was we just put like the websites on every single menu printed. Um, but the real big um, aha moment was when we started enabling these micro brands, these pizzerias with a digital presence and publishing that across the internet. So I made a deal with Google, uh, made a deal with Facebook directly, so that any time a pizzeria would be turned on on Slice, it would automatically then be found across the internet. And that was just, that was just unstoppable. And that allowed us to, to really scale. And from that moment on, it was just about, okay, how many restaurants can we get on board? It took two years. Uh, I think Nailpal had a very different story. Um, so the founder is Mary Biggins. She was also the co-founder of ClassPass. Um, and I guess for her, she would be going out to restaurants to pick up her food, and she'd think, like, how do I make this a better experience? How can I get, like, a cheap, convenient experience and still have delicious food? Um, why do I have to be paying this much money? Why do I have to wait in line? So she honed in on those pain points, um, and then she drew back to her home experience. So when she was growing up, she grew up in a big family. And her mom, the way she would make food for all the kids is basically to make a big batch of food and serve the same meal to everyone, no customizations. Um, so she was like, huh, maybe I could try this out with a meal subscription. So kind of similar to ClassPass, where it's a subscription service, uh, but with restaurants. So she signed up a bunch of restaurants on the platform, um, created a very, very low, like, MVP website and launched it in under a couple months just to see if people would respond, if people were interested. Um, after seeing some traction there, then uh, she saw that there was life there and, um, and blew it out further. So now we're in 19 cities. Um, but it was really like her mentality is to just like build an MVP, see what the customer response is first, and then figure out if you want to invest more time in building the product. So very different. A couple months instead of couple of years. A lot more money. <laughs> uh, I can kind of tell you a little bit about my story. Um, when I, uh, so Marley Spoon is a, a Berlin-based German company. We're operating in six countries worldwide. And so I was brought on to, to start the, the U.S. branch. And this is four years ago, and meal kits were definitely not very well known. And to me, they, I had no interest in a meal kit because I knew how to cook and I cooked all the time. So why did I need a service to send me food when I love to shop and I love to cook? Um, you know, and I'd create my own things. And so it just didn't, it wasn't for me. And I, it, oddly thinking back, like I really didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't really believe in it. And then as I started to build the brand, it became this thing that I started to really rely on in my personal life. Um, you know, it was, I was getting the boxes every week and realizing what a giant problem this was solving for me and how much time it was saving me. And all of a sudden I realized this is not just for inexperienced cooks, it's for experienced cooks, it's for everyone. It's, it's you know, a game changer. And then just to watch the growth as we grew from um, our tiny little facility in Long Island City um, to you know three giant facilities throughout the country and servicing pr pretty much most of the zip codes in the U.S. Um, in a very very short amount of time, it just I, I I got it personally, and I got why everybody else was was buying into it as well. Any other last questions? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? No? Okay. Well, it's about 20 after, so we're good. If we don't have any more questions, I will say uh, thank you to all the panelists for showing up and telling their stories. It's great. Check them out online, check out their services, listen to Tech Bytes. It's on iTunes and Stitcher. Subscribe, give me a five-star review. 
come on and listen to the episode I did with Ilar and the founder of uh, Food 52 and also the uh, seminar from General Assembly from last year is I broadcasted in two episodes. So this will also be broadcast later this season as an episode of Tech Bytes. I think that's it. It was great. Thank you all for coming. Thank General Assembly for hosting. I hope you enjoyed that special episode of Tech Bytes, the broadcast of a recorded panel at the General Assembly on the future of food. Today's episode was part two. If you want to catch up on part one, go to heritageradionetwork.org or iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, your favorite podcasting platform and catch up on the episode before this one. If you're interested in learning more about the companies or General Assembly, check out the show notes. We always try to include some online information and social media handles. If you love this episode, come back and see us again next week. Tech Bytes airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, your host and producer. The show is engineered by Jeet Paul. And our amazing techno theme song, Nomad a CPU track, is by DJ Uptown Nico. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.